Hello, Alaska. This is Pat Race. And this is Matt Buxton. And this is a podcast about Alaska. How's it going, Pat? It's good. How are you doing, Matt? Oh, I've got a little bit of a cold, but I'm back from a vacation that was much needed. So it's been a week. Yeah, uh, it has been a long week. It doesn't feel like it's been a week. It feels like it's been a lot longer. What day of the legislative session are we on now? Well, it is uh, Saturday, February 23rd, and it is day 40 of the Alaska legislature. All right. Well, um, I'm going to get us started today by reading uh, a quote from a book here. And uh, let me just jump into it. First impressions are hard to shake, whether of person or place. Further experience and observation may modify or reveal error, but all subsequent revisions are in some form variations on or counterpoint to the original theme. The initial encounter gives rise to firmly held convictions or prejudices illuminating or clouding our perception of all that follows, or it becomes a constant point of original reference, even when it is admittedly erroneous and thus continues to exert an influence in determining what is finally accepted as the reality of the subject. That was from The Future of Alaska, Economic Consequences of Statehood, which is a book by George Rogers. And uh, George Rogers was a uh, longtime Juno resident. Uh, he lived till 2010, I think. He was like 93 years old. And he um, was an economist who believed in the statehood movement and uh, worked for the territorial, worked for a few territorial governors uh, into statehood and, um, you know, up through kind of the oil revolution of Alaska, he saw a lot of the state evolve and help to guide it. Um, He's a really interesting fellow. And so I thought that that was that introduction to his book was particularly relevant just because we've we've been having a lot of first impressions this week. Uh, And it's been interesting to see uh, how people are reacting to this budget uh, and how people are defending the budget. And so um, I think that's kind of what we want to unpack today is just sort of how you know our observations on on various first impressions of this budget yeah yeah it's been an interesting week i mean we it kind of feels like it's the first week where like the legislature itself is kind of reaching some normalcy like so uh, last week before we we kind of reached our our the house finally organized with its majority it's bipartisan it's kind of republican led now um and they had some real committee hearings this week. So it had like a feeling of it being normal, even though pretty much everything else is still abnormal, I'd say. Yeah, it's been um, I guess you've been I mean, you've been covering this for a long time. So you would you would know what is normal and abnormal. It feels like it's been getting increasingly abnormal as I've observed the legislature. Yeah, you know, actually, so that's a good point. And one of the things that I feel is actually the, the most abnormal about it right now. I mean, beyond the budget itself and, and like all the kind of like uh, lack of justification that we've been seeing over the budget, this kind of like lack of thinking and, and vision and all that sort of stuff, is that um, in years past, a lot of the budget stuff, we'd always see like really stark dividing lines right down like the partisan middle where your kind of conservative Republicans would be on one side and your liberal Democrats. And, and it would be this really stark line where you could count on them to always sort of disagree with each other on every single thing. And right now we're seeing like this uh, kind of a unusual like alignment between like pretty conservative legislators and, and pretty much everyone else. And so I think that's actually kind of what is really so interesting ab- about this budget and about the sort of processes that you're seeing people like Tammy Wilson, you know, uh, kind of infamous legislator sort of becoming friends and working alongside Democrats, I mean, and, and kind of being their hero to some extent. Um, it's been an interesting week. Yeah. Well, what was what's the terminology for someone like Tammy Wilson in, in uh, the wrestling world? So Tammy would have been a so there's there's it's, it's the classic face and heel alliance. Uh, fa- there's baby faces who are your kind of heroes and your uh, heels who are your kind of, you know, your villains. And so Tammy has uh, completed what we would call uh, heel face turn. So she has turned face. So she's done a face turn. So she's gone in, you know, in a sort of a surprising, dramatic fashion and has become a hero to everybody. I mean, and this is it is wild because, you know, she still wants to cut a lot of stuff out of the state government. Like she just, she is, but she's a hero in this context because, uh, you know, the alternative is so much worse. 
you seem really preoccupied with Tammy Wilson. Yeah. I think it's probably because you've covered her for a, a lot of years. But I think this is like the third week in a row we've we've got, gone off in the weeds on like you know the, I, the, I've spent multiple after I spent a few afternoons like writing in her crummy old Ford Taurus. Oh really? Uh, covering her, yeah, like her going door to door, and uh, I yeah, I've always sort of been impressed by how hard she works. I've never really, you know, honestly, if I'm being honest, I don't agree with like anything she does, but. Uh, yeah, I think I, I've just I've always sort of been um, kind of taken away by somebody who works that hard. I yeah, guess, so. and and like you've said before, she she seems to genuinely care about her constituency, and that's what the difference is here is that she is connected to to the people she represents in a way that um, you know is difficult to justify some of these cuts to them. Right. Yeah, I think that's that's the big thing. Yeah. yeah. So what we I think the first you know the first day or two that we saw this budget, there was a lot of really big obvious things but now that we're kind of a week on um we're kind of seeing the second tier uh, um like the the cause and effect like you, you see sort of like the the big cuts to the university mm-hmm. but how will that affect uh university contractors or you see um you know big cuts to the ferry system but how will that affect uh transportation to, to some of these small rural communities right. and so we're starting to see second and third hand effect effects i think and i was wondering if you could maybe just give me a kind of a rundown on some of those things that have emerged in the last week. Yeah, so I mean the big kind of top line ones that come to mind to me are, you know, the the ferry service under this budget would completely stop for the rest of the year, for the rest of the financial year starting October 1st. So you wouldn't have any ferry service at all between October 1 and uh, July 1, 2020 at the very least. I mean, that's the very shortest time that you would have you wouldn't have service unless they'd figure out a way to privatize it, but that's the, that, that one really sticks with me. Um, you know, we're looking at kind of how bond debt reimbursement um, changes are, are would be affecting communities. I think there was a line that uh, Anchorage property taxes would go up on an average of about $1,000 if that only that part is repealed. Um, we're looking at education cuts, uh, university. Uh, it's, you know, a lot of we're seeing a lot of stories right now where it's like, community saying everything's on the table, um, all these sort of stories. And, you know, and there's other things too that are popping up. Like the one that um, Jacob Resnick down in Juneau caught on to was the repeal of the Ocean Rangers program. It's the you know, 2006 uh, ballot initiative before I was here, but um, where they were, you know, it's these sort of around the clock onboard pollution uh, monitoring agents for the state on cruise ships. Yeah, I've had friend, friends who have worked for that program. It's a, It's uh, been a good experience for them. Yeah, and, and it pays for itself. Like, it more than pays for itself. And uh, for some reason, they want to repeal that, too. And so, like, you know, you, you talk about, like, first impressions in it, right? And so and, and so I think a lot of the first impressions that are coming away from this is that it's, it, like, I think there's really a genuine concern that there's, like, no justification that this is, like, better for Alaska. But it's really just kind of, like, scoring these political points down the aisle. And it, it sort of doesn't have a vision. And, and it kind of... You know, you're cutting this program because you don't like pollution monitoring or something. I'm just kind of all this sort of stuff is just really. Yeah. yeah. It's weird to see. Uh, it's weird to lead with a uh, um, with uh, with numbers and rather than policy. And they keep saying, you know, we're not the policy team. Like we can't speak to the policy decision. We're just trying to save money. But then you pull something out like the Ocean Rangers program that actually does generate income for the state and provide jobs to people. And you have to wonder, like, that's not an economic decision to eliminate a program that's generating money. So you really have to wonder what kind of decisions are are going on um, and, and how they've prioritized this budget. And we're not getting those answers yet. Yeah, I mean, back um, when they were talking about the budget process, they talked about a plan to rank every state service and prioritize them against, I guess, the Constitution or something. I'm not really. They, we've been hearing a lot of stuff about how, right. oh, this isn't in the Constitution, so we we do, can't do it. So the, they specifically mentioned the, con- the 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 Ocean Ranger program is not being in the Constitution. Tammy Wilson actually asked for a list of those rankings during the House Finance meeting this week. She said, "Okay, I want to see your." these prioritization lists and so I'm, I'm really excited to see those when they come out um because i think that's gonna really reveal a lot of their thinking yeah i mean we and, well and the line that stuck with me over this last week is um 
is, is still that Donna Arduin, um, the OMB director's line about the the, the cost per, per mile cost of the marine highway system not being comparable to the to, uh, road highway. So Dan Ortez mentioned that this week, actually, he asked, you know, um, that they are continuing to spend money on road maintenance, but they're not going to spend money on the marine highway system. So he asked basically, you know, is 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 the marine highway not part of uh road you know our, our infrastructure and they basically said no you know it's not part of the right. infrastructure so they are it's not just like a simple ranking of these services but it's like a lot of judgment calls about like where certain stuff lands you know um so i guess if they had like bridges to all these communities maybe we, they would still get money for them but um yeah they the line was uh transportation infrastructure uh, is is different than running transportation yeah. systems. So they've prioritized running transportation systems lower. So I guess if they had a state bus or something, that would not be as high a priority right. as keeping the roads uh, open. So, uh, which, you know, that's interesting. So uh, I guess we'll, uh, the oceans will still be plowed, but they <laughs> will, will not be transited. Oh, but yeah, I think like that, that's that's something like, I mean, the, you talk about the, the, the closure of the ferry service, like, I mean, it's almost unimaginable to really like un- completely fully understand like what that's going to do to these communities that have like so heavily relied on them. You know, we've heard right. from um, one community that talked about, you know, they have one seaplane and that's it for getting in and out. So it's like they'd have to bring their groceries in on that or something or, or get whatever kind of shipments and stuff. So and and how are you going to get vehicles yeah. in and out of these places? Like that's you're not going to like put vehicle parts on a on a float plane and move them piece by piece you're gonna you're gonna yeah. need a landing craft and like and some of these communities don't have barge um docks and stuff like that um it's pretty i mean like that that cut alone i mean that's only a small part really of, of the bigger picture yeah no it's a giant it's a giant monkey wrench and then we're um you know we're talking about um this is is kind of a it's been couched as like a negotiation like this is a proposal this gov- this budget is the proposed budget this isn't the budget yeah. this is a proposed budget um you know and when when the president of the university came in front of uh senate finance this week uh he said we're not here to negotiate we've been here 100 years you know we're here to tell you that we're important and we're part of the state and I liked that he said we're not here to negotiate like he's he's trying to run a university and he's telling them what he needs to do that and on the other side of that like the university does need to justify its existence you know we need to be able to look at this you know per student cost and figure out why it's so high in Alaska and how we can you know how it's how we can justify it but the university is a big part of what Alaska is and it keeps people in the state and it keeps money in the state so with the university, basically what the what OMB has done is they've said, all right, this is uh, a 40% premium on what the national average is for the cost of uh, per student, and that's what we should pay for the university. Yeah, is, is I mean, that that's right? pretty much what they've been talking about. And, that's, and what's funny about that is that it's actually like Tammy Wilson did that kind of math years ago and was basically laughed out of the room. I think when I when I started talking about her more positively, I heard from a lot of people that were like, remember the university subfinance committee that she chaired? Like and with like kind of like post-traumatic stress disorder kind of like uh, uh, sort of reactions. And so, I mean, the, the, the idea of like just kind of dividing the cost of the universities uh, over all the students is just like this kind of absurd way of looking at it. I mean, the university is so different than a lot of other, I mean, he talked about this, right? Is that like, yeah, we're trying to be a lot of things to a lot of people. We provide, uh, continuing education courses. We provide a traditional college experience. Um, you know, and like one of the things they looked at this week is they looked at the, the cost of some of those community campuses and they're like, wow, these are really inexpensive and they're pretty competitive. But for some reason, the university of Alaska Fairbanks is way more expensive. And then the university president comes up and says, well, that's because the UAF is taking on a lot of the overhead for the community campuses. And so we have this deeply intertwined system that, you know, it's, it's really going to take some disentanglement to really find where there can be some savings. Yeah. And I think they don't really, I mean, that's the thing that's, it's difficult to understand about the university of Alaska system is that like a lot of those community campuses aren't a whole lot more than just like an office with decent internet connection and a bunch of like pamphlets and sort of the materials for these courses. So like a lot of it is delivered from Fairbanks and um, like especially through the um, their career and technical college, all that sort of stuff gets delivered through them. And it's, and it's, a lot of those cases, like those people aren't 
earning like a normal four-year degree. They're earning kind of certificates and all those kind of things. It's just really frustrating. You might be able to tell this is something that I've like reported on a few times before. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really interested to see the the full report because we got kind of an abbreviated report from the university president um, in Senate finance. They limited him to like six slides. And I think he had 20 something. But the, uh, um, you know, he talked about things like the university was, is a land grant institution, but they really weren't given that much land. And uh, some mm-hmm. of the land they're owed, they don't have. And places like Rhode Island has more land than, than Alaska. And, you know, yeah. like Washington has something like 100 times as much land in their land grant universities. There's some expectations being put on the university that may or may not be, like, realistic. And uh, it's going to take a real deep dive to figure that out. So, and, and that's what Senate finance subcommittees and, and House finance subcommittees will do. Um, yeah, but but it's been done before. Like this isn't new stuff. Yeah, I think. I mean, I, I think part of it that's interesting. I mean, we talked about it before a little bit. Is that this is kind of forcing the discussion around a lot of these like issues that we've have put off. Like we've the university's been talking for as long as I remember about its problems with its land grant. Like it doesn't have all its land, and you know, but it's something that kind of has often turn into just a interesting meeting that doesn't go anywhere. And so, you know, if, if these conversations can say, okay, well, maybe we can cut you guys, but maybe we can see about actually getting you guys the land that you're, you're due. Like if those, if those are sort of the conversations that come out of this, like maybe that works because the university like does have these other problems and these other things that like do need to be addressed as our, are are things to be fixed and and, but you know the question is are they serious about fixing them are they just cutting it to cut it yeah and that applies to like the whole system the whole state the whole state budget and uh, so so i think what i'd like to do matt is i'm going to play um just kind of like a a highlight reel of some of the conversations that have happened in the finance committees um this week just to because i think there's it's one thing to hear us talk about it and i think it's one another thing to hear people's voices and to hear what's happening in the room and and we can kind of cherry pick some of the interesting discussion points here um so i'm just going to roll this is a good this is a good week for this i'm excited for this yeah so i'm just going to roll some of that and then um and then we can talk about it what we're doing here at the finance committee is going through each department well with the Office of Management and Budgets Director. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. It's Donna Ardwin, the Office of Management and Budget Director. Ardwin? Yeah. Okay, thank you very much. Appreciate that. Yeah. Be polite, but kind of blunt. Are they arbitrary numbers, or how did you, do, how did you decide what is the appropriate number for education funding? And, and the other items as well, is there? Um, national averages are a little over 7,000. We determined that um, we would base our budget proposed on about 11,000 per student. So that's how we came about that number. And yet you are saying uh, we're going to take away hundreds of millions of dollars from the people of Alaska, but we're going to add $227 million in oil and gas tax credits. How do I possibly justify that to my constituents? We're putting a budget together. We're not the policy team. So do you not think that the marine highway system is part of our infrastructure? Through the chair. Um, and when our, our, all of our departments went through a prioritization process, um, starting with their core programs, and the um, transportation infrastructure was at the top of the department's list. Running transportation systems was not. Senator Bishop. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, either one of you. How does this budget proposal grow Alaska's economy? Senator Von Imhoff. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, I just have to chuckle over the header of unleashing entrepreneurialism um, as uh, shutting down state funding on so many areas and, and hoping that the private sector will pick up the slack. We'll go through the process. Go ahead and continue. Chairman, we're having some technical difficulties up here. Does everyone have the next page? How does this budget proposal grow Alaska's economy? Representative Carpenter. The tax has obviously got to have to be made up by the boroughs. So what does what does right look like for the state? And is this a good thing for the state as a whole? That's I want to see the analysis that says that's a po- this is a positive way to go for the state as a whole. Through the chair, Representative Carpenter. Um, so the, the policy parameters around this budget are we're going to pay full permanent fund dividends 
and we're going to have revenues meet expenditures with no new additional revenues assessed by the state. So within that parameter, um, there is impact to every governmental entity, uh, every state department, every Alaskan, quite frankly. There's no way to, to, to do this exercise without everyone being impacted in some way. Mm -hmm. Senator Michigan. Yeah, I just want to point out again that we uh, continue to talk about this approach that was not going to be raising taxes on Alaskans, which which uh, is 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 not a fact. It's it's an approach that doesn't change the state tax rate, but dramatically changes the local tax rate. And I'll give you a couple of examples. The University of Alaska Fairbanks is, appears to be the large cost driver here. I, I'm not going to negotiate. Uh, I'm here to advocate the region's budget uh, for what the regents believe is necessary to provide higher education from occupational endorsements and associates degrees on up through doctorates here in Alaska. Uh, we've been here 100 years and we've been through rough spots over that period. We'll be here in 100 years. And you are, with this proposed budget, playing with people's lives. There is no great state economy without a strong university, period, end of report. Across the nation, and especially in Alaska, we are dealing with an, um, an opioid um, crisis. This is a shift from state picking up the cost to my community-owned hospitals taking up the cost in emergency care when those services are not provided. My taxpayers will pay the difference. Through the chair, Senator, um, this contract was procured under a sole source procurement. Have you had any legal analysis done on, on whether you have actually followed, the, the, the department has followed the procurement laws? And are you planning on liquidating, selling, or privatizing the pioneer homes? Medicaid reductions, are there hospitals out there that are in danger of closing because of the Medicaid reductions? No. I, again, do not have the, um, all the specifics of the Medicaid reduction. We will be providing that to the committee. They say uh, in this email specifically that they are planning zero uh, ferry transport from October to June. So DOT's plan actually has no ferry plan in it at all, just FYI. What's the date of the email? Uh, it, this morning. So uh, that alone will terminate the existence of the Marine Highway. We have roughly $2 billion in the CBR. Takes three-quarter vote. We have a couple hundred million in the SBR. Takes a simple majority. We have the power cost equalization of about a billion one. Um, we have the ability to go to the permanent fund, uh, and we're going to do that to about five and a quarter percent. And we are in a position of of being cornered to make our payroll. We don't have a $60 billion permanent fund to liquidate, because we're not going to liquidate it. In the, in the effort to eliminate the cost of parachutes, um, we didn't evaluate other methods of getting to the ground before we left the plane without one. So my favorite quote of that, that bunch, I think, is the Ben Carpenter quote, um, which is, you know, is the, is the budget driving policy or is policy driving the budget? I think that's like, a, I think his idea, his, his kind of, I wrote a whole piece about this, so you might, you might tell that I'm getting kind of excited about this sort of stuff. But I think this is really interesting. I mean, he's coming, this is a guy who's a, very clearly a pro Dunleavy um, Republican. He's pretty far right, uh, but he's, you know, he, he's concerned about his community. He's concerned about the vision in this budget. Um, and he's, you know, he's calling it like it really is. I think if, if, if a pro Dunleavy legislator is talking like this, you know, I think it really kind of strikes at the core problems of, of what's going on right now. And, and I think uh, the fact that it, it's he's not this sort of ardent defender of it really speaks to the fact that, like, some of this stuff really isn't normal right now. Like, this isn't a normal budget and a normal budgetary process where we aren't getting any of the justifications that we would normally get for some of this. Yeah, yeah. And I think that, oh, and I think that a lot of legislators, especially like Ben Carpenter, are, are looking for that. Like, if you could just give them, even if it's kind of phony, you know, like you look, you look back at the oil tax debate, for example, um, you know, they promised a million barrels and that was enough 
um, for a lot of people to get on with that proposal. And they can't even do that with this. Um, and I think that's, I think it's really frustrating, I think. And it'll, it'll make the next um, few months where, where they're working on the budget really interesting. Yeah, but I think those empty promises are yet to come. Like, I think that the, you know, all of this, we're not the policy team and wait until our economist gives a presentation on this. So, you know, we're going to see... Um, we're going to see that laid out. We're going to see why this is a huge benefit to our private economy and yada, 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 and how it's going to save the state. And, um, you know, so I think that that justification is coming and maybe, maybe some of this is just listening to the questions so they know which ones to address or, you know, like where to blow, where to blow smoke. (laughs) I mean, and they have been, I mean, I, I kind of got a little flack about this on Twitter this week, but they, they are getting better at blowing smoke. I mean, I think they're, they're figuring out how to talk to the legislature a little bit better. I think it, it might take some time if you only landed in Alaska in the last few months, but, um, they're definitely figuring out how to speak like Alaska legislature. And I think that should be something we keep in mind as we're going forward, that they're going to be able to sell it better i think so yeah so so what's next matt well uh so we are five days away from halfway through this session right now uh well that's not really halfway uh, through the session right i mean we've got the the whole 90 days is kind of a farce so it's it's really a 121 day session right and then you know they can extend and special session all to their heart's desire basically um i think i would really really be concerned if anybody thinks that they're going to get done in 90 days. I think that uh, any push to get it done is a push to rush things and a push to kind of, I don't know, we'll force things through without any actual um, uh, proper scrutiny. I think so. I think any, I think people should actively resist the 90 day session at this point. Um, so what we're going to have, I mean, we saw it sort of unfold this week. Um, you know, subcommittees and the budget finance committees are kind of getting spooled up, are starting to look at a lot of this legislation in in, in more detail. So, we're, you know, this is where we're seeing things about, you know, the Ocean Ranger program or on Friday, you know, where we heard uh, Senate Finance talking about, you know, cuts to health and social services, where we had um, Senator Lyman talking about playing with lives. Um, so we're going to have a, basically a slow roll over the next couple weeks of just daily grind of here's this other horrible thing and here's what it would do and and maybe here's one good thing and then here's five more bad things and so yeah um, these are the sort of the discussions that'll start to take place over the next few weeks uh, and then ultimately the legislature puts together their version of the of the budget they take this proposed budget and then they make the real budget. And then they send it off to the governor, who then vetoes a bunch of stuff, right? Right. Do they know ahead of time what's going to get vetoed? Do they have that conversation generally? Like, how does that work? It depends on it depends on how closely they're working together. I think um, uh, it depends. Basically, um, they seem like they're not working closely together right now. Do you think they're going to work with Dunleavy and come up with a solution that he doesn't have to throw a bunch of vetoes at, or do you think it's going to be a real battle between the governor and the legislature? Well, I mean, that, so that's the thing is that he has line item veto power. So um, he can kind of do whatever he wants with it. I mean, in the the override of it requires three-quarter vote, so it's difficult there. Um, I do think that, you know, if they were wise, they would try to find places where they can agree on things with it, um, maybe find a place to do it. I, and so the big part of it is that, you know, the line item veto can reduce spending uh, or eliminate it, it cannot increase it. So the one place where the legislature, I think, will have some... Um, uh, negotiation power? Yeah, we'll have some negotiation power with them is over the PFD funding, right? And so um, he wants a lot of money for the PFD, and you've already seen a lot of legislators, and this is what I think is another interesting point from this week, is legislators talking about how this, is really, this budget really illustrates um, that it's the PFD versus everything else, you know, everything else in state spending is taking a back seat to it. And that's even, you know, that's clearly the, but the governor's budget priority, you know, he's been asked a few times this week or his, his staff, excuse me, he hasn't been in the public spotlight all week. Um, but, uh, his staff have basically said that his budget priorities are one, a full PFD and two, no new revenues otherwise. So it sets up a um, really, really, uh, 
interesting conflict between the PFD and funding government, which may be intentional because it it also leaves out and obfuscates uh, other solutions like income taxes or oil taxes. Right. I mean, yeah, if, if you want to set up a situation where you continue to delay the conversation about an income tax or a conversation about oil taxes, kind of reopening the fight over the PFD is a pretty good way of doing it. What, what do you think his goal is ultimately? Do you think his his vision is to uh, m- you know, reach the budget that he sent out originally, or do you think he's looking for some kind of a halfway measure, or do you think he's hoping the legislature will help him to break his promise on the full PFDs uh, and provide him from some coverage, or like, what do you what do you think he wants out of it? Because like Dunleavy's hard for me to read right now, just because he's not actually having any kind of conversation that's meaningful with Alaskans. I and this is gonna sound a little more conspiratorial, or maybe maybe not conspiratorial, but. I really don't think he has a vision. Um, you know, this oh. is a guy who got out of the Alaska Senate after six years, I think, without passing a single bill, without passing, you know, without anything to his name, not even, you know, not even the meaningless kind of, the quote unquote meaningless sort of stuff, not even the easy sort of stuff that they give. He was in the majority the whole time. And so, you know, his sort of policies that he did put it together were um, school vouchers um, and, I think that was, he had a couple other, like in the PFD and there's a couple other little things. And so, you know, you look around at his administration and I think it's actually, it's much more, well, not much more partisan than you'd think. I think people realize how partisan it is, but I think a lot of these sort of decisions are being driven by party line kind of stuff. Um, You know, we, he's brought in a budget director who has a long history of working with um, conservative governments to kind of implement sort of conservative thinking and budgeting. And so, you know, I think it's kind of in some level, like kind of an, a, a playground to see just how, you know, how we, how broad we can implement conservative sort of policies with some of this stuff. And, and you're not talking, you know, you're not it, talking about like Alaska conservative policies. You're talking about like national agenda na- stuff. Yeah. National so, conservative policy. So this I is think, just like a playground for someone that is from somewhere else that is, you know, like, okay, we're going to send in Donna to OMB and she's going to do this. And then we're going to send in, you know, like Carl and he's the guy that does this thing. And they're going to just kind of run a playbook yeah. playbook on us is what you're saying. Well, and, and people, you know, but we're already seeing people kind of getting rich off of it too. I mean, you look at the, um, the API contract, like, yeah, that's sure. I, I believe that, you know, I, I don't, I can buy the com- the problem that, you know, they needed some emergency people to come in, but the idea that they might be able to continue this contract for for years without without a bid process on it is 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 like absurd to me and um so you know so it's it's kind of it's it's this like conservative playbook of free market but it's not really that free of a market so so okay hold on conspiracy theory thing yeah you kind of got your tinfoil hat on but so does that look like um okay so i own a private prison company and i uh you know, pay a bunch of money to national party uh, candidates and, and and the party itself, and then they get a hold of a state, and then they funnel me a no bid contract. Is that kind of like what you're looking at? Is that the bigger? Yeah, I don't think. It, is it like I, I wealth extraction quite... or like what? I don't. I, okay, so I don't think it's quite like. I don't think these things. It's are not quite overt, like, right? So, I don't think it's. Yeah, I don't think it's quite transactional like yeah. that. I think it's much more like. These people are friends. These people are, you know, they they all believe in this sort of free market, private prison sort of thing is good. You know, this is just kind of the thing that these people believe. I don't think it. I don't think anybody's necessarily paying them to to think this way. I think it's just sort of how they already right. So think. It, so but, it would be the same thing if uh, if like Jonathan Christ Tompkins took over the legislature and implemented a bunch of green policy stuff that benefited businesses that he was associated well maybe not he was associated with but that like that were ran in you know like of that personal philosophy so yeah i guess so so under a republican governor it still wouldn't look great i think it still would would uh uh uh, it would warrant a little bit of extra scrutiny on it yeah i don't yeah it's 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 always tough to tell what is um just sort of like uh in the realm of convenience and 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 what's really 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 wrong and i think we, yeah. we talked about that a little bit before like i don't think 
you know, even if Donna Ardwin has connections to some of these private prison groups, there's really nothing that she's done wrong unless she's gone to the governor and said, you need to do this. Because, I mean, it's not she right. she hasn't been involved in in any of the API stuff that I'm aware of. And not that we know. of, yeah. Well, not that we know of. Right. And if she's not involved, yeah. it's just a it's just a convenient, you know, parallel. So, you know, who cares mm-hmm. if she owns the company it's not yeah i mean maybe maybe whoever was making that decision just you know read everybody else's news stories and said oh i remember that geo group yeah we've seen it in the headlines so much yeah or i i heard no. good things about them from donna yeah. <laughs> yeah but i don't know it's not no, yeah. i think that I there's i don't think it's a yeah I, I i should step i should i should say that i, I don't think it's quite as conspiratorial right as there's that um but we're coming from a place of trauma as a state like we experienced the vico scandal and we saw what overt corruption looks like we saw what it looks like when industry buys legislators and and votes and um you know we didn't even as the public we probably didn't even see the full extent of that but um you know that kind of stuff does happen and we know it happens because we observed it and so it's fair that we're cautious about it or that or that people in alaska are worried about it right yeah, I think so. I think, like, uh, you know, I, I did a little bit of work this week looking through, like, lobbyist contracts. I did a, a post about, uh, like, who was paying who for what on the lobbying thing. And, and you know, it kind of made me think about some of the sort of my sort of firsthand experiences seeing lobbyists down in Juneau. And it's, it is kind of, it's not necessarily like they're walking into offices saying you need to vote for something or, or you know, or they're, and they're going to like promise campaign donations or anything like that, but they are friendly, they're friends, you know, and it's like when I need to get advice on this thing, I'm going to ask this person who I, I'm pretty sure knows about it. So um, it's like these, and so I think that's, it's kind of, it's not corruption, but it's sort of, it's influence, I guess. And it's sort of, and I don't think it, it doesn't necessarily make it wrong, but it doesn't necessarily make it right either. Um, I don't know. I think there's a lot of sort of kind of unclear, you know, there's a lot of things that kind of happen around the edges of the legislature and of politics that are uncomfortable. They're not really illegal or anything like that. Um, but what I, I was going to say, though, is that I think in in cases like that where, you know, yeah, like, this prison contract could be totally legit, right? But I think, you know, it's it's important to get out in front of this stuff as far as, like, outlining... It goes back to the fact that there's really no vision or explanation for this budget. Like, in, in the absence of justification, you kind of fill it in with the bad stuff. Right, exactly. And and that's the thing with the, with, with the prison contract and with the state budget and everything else is that... So why a no-bid contract? Why no explanation of policy? What You know, like, there's all this all this stuff that you can just backfill with your own like crazy kooky left-wing conspiracy theories. Right. But, but it really, it really gives a lot of room for that. And just like you said with Ben Carpenter, like he doesn't even know what the hell's going on. Like he doesn't have any justification. Like you have legislators over and over again, Republican legislators saying, what am I going to say to my constituents? Because they have nothing to say to their constituents because it's, there's no justification other than we're spending too much money. (laughs) And we're afraid to raise revenue. I mean, and I know, I know a lot of these legislators, and like a lot of them are 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 smart, are hardworking people, but they also, for the most part, really want to give a lot of other people around them, especially that are politically friendly to them, the benefit of the doubt, right? Like, if somebody comes into your office and says, "Hey, you know, I, I, what, you know," starts to justify, you know, I think prison contracts are a great idea. They're so efficient, people are happy, blah blah blah. Like, the legislators are kind of primed to want to believe them and and the fact that they don't even they're not even there with the kind of shoddy i mean you're right it's probably going to come but um the fact they're not there right now and they're not they're not having those kind of conversations and getting people on board right now is really speak i think it really speaks to just like how little work and how how unserious this budget is right now yeah you talked about something there that really resonated with me and that's this idea that we want to give people the benefit of the doubt. And I think that we are, we live in such small communities in Alaska that we, not even that we want to give people the benefit of the doubt, but that we have to give people the benefit of the doubt. And yeah. that, um, you know, for our own continued existence, we're going to see people over and over and over again. And we have to be able to work together and talk with each other. And um, you, know, you can't, you can't quite burn people down in the same way you can in a, in a big city where they're, they're almost disposable and you won't see them again. Like you right. really have to be able to like 
even on like the the smallest level of like this guy cut in front of me in line you you have to be a little bit gracious because you're probably going to see that person somewhere else in some other context in your in your small town and so i think you know in a way we're we're maybe even uh sometimes to our to a fault we're forgiving of um you know, like mm-hmm. bad behavior like there's this woman in town here who embezzled thirty thousand plus dollars from my dad and you know like i see pictures of people i know like hanging out with her and having a good time and it's super weird but it's like it's oh, just yeah. it's just our community you know you these are the people who are around us and you're like well okay watch your wallet but uh you know like okay i guess you know we're we're all friends here so it's and it's just this it's it's a tough uh it's a tough thing and you can't you can't isolate someone that's done something wrong you have to figure out how to like bring them back into the community and and you know but if someone keeps abusing your trust i don't know it's just like a it's a real nest i haven't quite unraveled yet but i think that by virtue of being a small place yeah. alaska is especially trusting i got a bridge to sell you yeah the bridge business is going to be a good one with uh all the ferries going out out of business um speaking of of uh we talked a little bit about ferries earlier i, I did a little bit of reading and it was it was really interesting so our Alaska Marine Highway System started uh, as a private company. It started in 1949. This guy bought a, uh, a World War II, uh, like it was like a landing craft for tanks, you know, to like <laughs> drive tanks up the beach. Mm-hmm. And it, so he got this, you know, cast off, uh, refurbished boat and brought it up to Alaska and turned it into a ferry that that ran from Juneau to Haines and Skagway. And uh, he ran it for a couple of years and then it wasn't, it was not economically viable. And he uh, worked with the state to have them take it over. And that, and that is what eventually became the Alaska Marine Highway. And, you know, if you, you think about like 1949, the standards of, of operation and the, the, the expectation of what kind of service you're going to get must have been so low compared to what they are to get today. And like, I'm, you know, they're not getting Coast Guard inspections and, and it's just like the uh, the idea that that uh, that we're going to return to that kind of privatized system that couldn't work in in the like late 40s just doesn't seem real practical to me. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's I think they you know, the, I think living in an Arctic uh, state and a very coastal kind of difficult coast coastal state like we are, it just really doesn't seem to catch a lot of these people like they, they seem, don't seem to really understand it i i think or and, and so rural too and um you hear like stories of, of people coming from the lower 48 like asking about driving to Nome or something like that and um i think that's kind of what's going on here a little bit i think these are a lot of people who don't really understand uh rural alaska or coastal alaska haven't been a part of it before yeah. well except for the governor apparently and uh so I think some of these decisions just don't just don't seem to connect to Alaska, and I think that's really that's really it. Really is sort of sad. I think I think that's sort of where I've been going with a lot of this, and it's just sort of feeling really just disappointed. I think for Alaska is that we kind of elected this guy who doesn't seem to have a clear vision or understanding of what makes Alaska unique. Yeah, it's interesting to me that someone with so much uh, public sector experience is, is like really raw, raw, raw private sector because like there's there's no one better to take up the economies of scale that benefit the whole state than than the state of Alaska. You know, so like why are we why privatizing something like the ferry just is it's so silly because we can't uh, you can't spread out the the economy of scale enough to make it work out, and so things like you know things like healthcare, like there, there's there's a lot of things yeah. the government is better at. So, you know, the military, the there's just there are things that we need, fire departments, and um, you know it it doesn't quite work mm-hmm. on the that localized scale, and it also like cuts off access to a, a whole bunch of people when you start privatizing things. Yeah, I mean you're starting to choose winners and losers basically. Right. So are, when we talk about privatization, are we talking about more no-bid contracts? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, it's something that I think that actually, again, you know, I find my favorites every week and then just kind of drill, drill that their 
their quotes out for every single piece of value. But um, Ben Carpenter, again, he sort of he's talked about, you know, with the um, the oil tax uh, bill that the governor's proposing or the oil uh, pro- oil and gas property tax bill that the governor's proposing um, sweeps up like four hundred and forty million dollars of local property taxes that presumably would have to be made up somewhere else. Um, and his question was like, overall, is this good for Alaska or bad for Alaska? Like, what is this a net hole for all? And he's like, and I'm, he's clear that it's not, it's right. not a discussion about the state of Alaska as the as in the government, but the state overall. And I think that's a really good way of approaching things. I think we need to be thinking of like the state as an ecosystem, you know, that relies on all of its parts to function. You know, it needs it needs the government's. Um, providing the services at, to allow you know the private sector to come in and, and do everything else it can do. It, it's that criticism he had is so spot on because you know stripping all this money from these communities, it, you know that's going to turn into property taxes. That's going to turn into sales taxes. It's going to turn into whatever the community can extract from their community members. And it's you know when you say no new taxes and then you force a bunch of new taxes it's kind of disingenuous yeah i think it's an attempt to 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 kind of shrink government everywhere i think that the idea is that by strangling the state government you can strangle all these communities too so there's less government everywhere i think that's kind of sort of they haven't really explicitly said that but i think that's i mean when they answer um to the questions about like well what will this do to x y or z community they say, well, it, it's not our it's not our problem to know what local communities do to manage their themselves, and it's like, well, it, it is, but also, I kind of wonder if, if you know, the their the implied statement is basically, well, if they're getting cut, they should cut them their services too. They should be matching their expenditures to revenues. Yeah. What do you think about that idea that government is kind of this ever expanding weed that needs to be killed? I think government does end up with its fair share of like benign tumors or fatty lymphomas or whatever you want to, whatever bump you want to talk about. Um, yeah, I think there are, I think that having like regular sort of like sunsets or reviews of things to see how they're working is a really good idea. I think it's good to have these kind of questions and the Dunleavy kind of thing could work in, in, in a world where he's being kind of honest and, and straightforward and, and kind of spelling out a vision for Alaska where he's, you really having us sort of have these tough conversations about what kind of services we're we're putting together, but it just just doesn't feel um, very honest right now. It doesn't feel very um, honest. Yeah, an honest budget, fiscal year twenty twenty. Uh, um, okay, so I I think here's the note we end on, and it's uh, uh the governor has been really kind of not very present this last week since the budget dropped. I don't know. So he's just sort of evaporated. Um, but whoever's got a hold of his Twitter account, and I'm, I I highly <laughs> I suspect that it's not him, uh, tweets out, should the legislature allow Alaskans to vote on a constitutional amendment that creates a spending limit and savings plan to stop politicians from spending every penny we have? Tell us why or why not. He's not quite getting ratioed here, but there's a lot of salty comments. And I was wondering what your thoughts are on a constitutional amendment that creates a spending limit and savings plan i don't like any of them i think um i've been having a really interesting conversation with uh one of our new contributing writer for the midnight sun uh, tj presley about um how investments in the economy uh, like drive private economy economic growth and um so i think like i think I, i i go back to the idea that you know this idea that Everything in the government does needs to be able to pay for itself or it needs to pencil out or whatever. I think it's just a really wrong thing. I think I think things can pay out in ways that aren't, you know, the, the service fees uh, that that you're getting. They, they pay out in other ways. And so um, I think there are places and times where we're going to say, yeah, well, you know, let's go build a commuter rail line or let's go build a big dam for Alaska or let's go build a road to Nome for whatever reason, like, um, or a railroad connection to, to to the North Slope or something like that. like Or a water pipeline to California. Yeah, you know, anything, yeah. But, like, all these sort of things, like, those are going to be these really big ideas. You know, if I guess if you go back and you, you look at, you know, probably the, the pipeline or a lot of those sort of things around that, like, 
if we were applying the same kind of thinking today, would any of that stuff been possible back then? I don't, I don't know. And, um, I don't think so. All right. Getting back to my, getting back to my original question, the, uh, the constitutional amendment. I think that the only thing that is really, really needs to be changed about the constitution is the, is the super embarrassing 1998 marriage amendment. Right. Uh, that defines marriage as between one man and one woman. I think that that can go. And I don't think we need a spending limit in the Constitution because I I believe we already have a spending limit and and it is proved entirely impractical. And so anytime you put a spending limit in place, it's either going to be too much and it's not going to matter because we're never going to hit the cap or it's going to be too little and you're going to have to adjust it because you need to spend more money. And like that's just the reality of things like I could put like talk about home finances is it's a really simplified way of talking about government finances. If I put a spending cap on myself, it doesn't matter. I'm going to spend however much money I need to spend. You know, if the car breaks, I'm going to go fix it. We're restricted by the revenues we have, but an arbitrary spending limit really doesn't make a lot of sense. Right. If we're talking about constitutional amendments, I would I would like a conversation. I don't I'm not necessarily pushing for it, but I would like to hear a conversation about getting rid of the line item veto for the budget at least. I think that is an incredibly powerful tool that we've given our governor. I mean, it's a, you know, our governor is like one of the strongest, right, in in the country, um, because of that. And tallest. And to, what? And tallest. What? Do you, Sorry, what do you I was, it was a joke. I said and tallest. Oh yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> okay, but. Um. But yeah, I mean, it, it's created this situation where the governor can kind of do whatever he wants at this point. I mean, so he was elected uh, by his majority or whatever, but it kind of, it sort of locks out the legislature in some way. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on the veto or the, the line item veto? I mean, I don't know. It seems like it's an okay tool. It, it seems like it hasn't really been abused yet, but I guess we'll get to find out what that looks like this year. Yeah, I guess that's maybe this year's the sparks the conversation about it. Maybe. Yeah, maybe I'll have some strong feelings about it uh, in the summertime. Yeah. All right. Great. Well, it was been it's been good talking with you, and uh, I'll talk to you next week. All right, Matt. You have a good week. I'll talk to you later. All right. Great. Goodbye, Alaska. See you later. See everybody tomorrow. Smiley face, 9 a.m., we are adjourned.